This week we're on week three of our series where we're exploring the whole book of James. Andrew Harris started off by looking at chapter one and he encouraged us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because actually it's the testing of our faith that produces perseverance. And if we can view the challenges and, and troubles of life as a, as a platform for growth rather than a pitfall, then we can develop that perseverance and character and really grow in our faith. Andrew looked at, sorry, Simon last week looked at chapter two and there he explored the concept of faith and works and how those two are so inextricably linked. They're like two sides of the same coin, if you like. You can't have one without the other. And this week we're on chapter three and in this chapter, James talks about wisdom and the power of the tongue. So let's dive straight into the chapter. If you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, you can follow the passage on the front of the teaching notes. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James begins this chapter with quite a sobering message, I think, for the believers. He says, not many of you should become teachers. In the Jewish tradition, being a teacher was considered a very respectable position. It was highly valued. And many Jews who embraced Christianity actually wanted to be teachers. But here is James saying to them, not many of you should become teachers. But when you see this in in the context of the whole passage, you realize, hey, James is not wanting to just pour cold water on their dreams. He's actually trying to get to the heart of the matter. You see, he's, he's really wanting to just say, let's just pause for a minute and consider. What's driving you? What's behind the desire to be a teacher? Is it really coming from a heart that loves God and wants to see his people grow in the knowledge and and, an understanding of him? Or is your desire to be a teacher actually driven by selfish ambition and the desire for the applause and the approval of others? He says, you need to know something up front if you're desiring to be a teacher that when we teach, all of, us, all of us make mistakes, none of us get it right. But if your starting point is a heart of selfish ambition and vain conceit, then you're going to cause a whole lot of trouble for people further down the line. He says, not many of you should become teachers because teachers will be judged more harshly. You see, the position of teacher carries with it a great responsibility because your example, your words, will impact other people's lives, maybe for the rest of their life. I'm sure all of us in this room, if we just thought for a few moments, all of us could think back and remember at least one or two teachers that have impacted, over, impacted us over our childhood and our our teenage years, whether positively or negatively. I actually started my career as a teacher. I was a secondary school teacher, and I used to teach French and German. And I taught for three years, and I can tell you that there was more than one occasion when my mouth got me into trouble. And there's one particular uh, class in my first year of teaching, and I had a year 10 French class. They were a set three, so they struggled with French. And so one of the things that I used to do to help them with it was I used to try and associate a word in French with something in English that made it memorable. So if it sounded like something in English, we used to try and connect it. Well, this one day, we were talking about holidays and how do you go on holiday and looking at traveling by aeroplane. And so we wanted to learn the phrase, the journey lasts X amount of hours. So I'm flying to Spain and the journey lasts three hours, or I'm flying to Italy and maybe the journey lasts two hours. And the verb in French to last is the verb durer, D-U-R-E-R. So you would say, le vol dure trois heures, or le vol dure cinq heures. Can you remember how to count in French? (laughs) 
and I was thinking, they were really struggling with this verb durer, so I was thinking, how can I help them with this? What, can I, what word in English can I think of that's going to help them with this word durer? I suddenly had a moment of inspiration. I thought, I know, Duracell. Duracell batteries. At the time, there was an advert for Duracell batteries, and on it, you had these little bunnies, pink, fluffy bunnies, with Duracell batteries in their back, and all through the advert, these bunnies were jumping around, but the only bunny that was still standing at the end of the advert was the bunny that had the Duracell batteries in its back. So I was thinking, well, the journey lasts, you know, that connects Duracell batteries, etc. Duracell, durée. That's what I was thinking. This is what I said. Okay, class, I've just thought of a great way for you to remember the verb durée. Just think, durex. They, they just sort of looked at me blankly, and I was thinking, they don't get it. So I said, you know, it lasts a long time. <laughs> well, I had a few cheeky uh, girls in there, and one of them shouts out from the back, Miss, does it last a long time? Honestly, I, it took me a, like a split second to realize what I had just said. And then I just, honestly, apart from my face burning bright red, I just had visions of my teaching career flashing before me, thinking, those kids are going to go home tonight, and I'm gonna, in the morning I'm going to be pulled into the headmaster's office to explain myself. And uh, I've got plenty more stories like that, and I only taught for three years. Um, but I want to ask you a question this morning. Who are your teachers? Because we don't graduate from that when we leave school or university. Who are your teachers? Who are the voices that you are listening to today? Because I want you to know this. Those voices, those words are shaping your life more than you know. You see, if you think that teachers are the only ones who impact others by their words, you're mistaken. Every time we open our mouth, we are teaching someone. We are influencing someone. We are causing them to go maybe in one direction or another direction. Because, you see, words have tremendous power. And that's the point that James is trying to get over in this passage. He's trying to say to them, you know what? You need to realize the power of words. And he uses this incredible imagery and horses and bits and ships and rudders and a world of evil and corruption and hell. He's not being dramatic for the sake of it. He's trying to sound the alarm bell and saying, listen, people, you need to remember that the life, life and death is in the power of the tongue. You see, there's no middle ground when it comes to our words. There's no neutral territory. Words have tremendous power. But they have potential for either good or evil, for life or death. And you get to choose which one? You can either speak words of life over people or speak words of death over people. You can either build people up with your words or you can tear them down. The choice is yours. But if that's not sobering enough, James says, there's something else that you need to know about the tongue. No human being can actually tame it. And if you don't believe me, just look at your own life, he says. 
Because there you are, lifting your hands in worship, telling the Lord how much you love him. Oh, yeah, we love you, Jesus. Oh, yeah, we, we adore you, Jesus. Jesus, you're so beautiful. You're so lovely. We adore you. And then two minutes, we're heading out for coffee, and then we're tearing someone down. Someone who's been made in the image and likeness of others. And James is saying, listen, you know, he, you get to this point in the passage and he said, it's almost as though he just pulls back and he just pauses and he says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. This cannot be. This is totally inconsistent with the life of a disciple of Jesus. You see, what James is calling us to is authenticity as believers. Authenticity is about the gap between who I am and the words that I speak. The bigger the gap, the more inauthentic I am. The closer the gap, the more authentic I am. You see, Jesus was completely authentic. That's why his words carried power. You see, people said of him that he spoke, he taught with authority, not like the teachers of the law. And the reason for that authority was because the words he spoke connected with who he was. And James is calling us here to be authentic disciples of Jesus, that who we say we are and who we really are are aligned and that we live that life that, is, that glorifies God and is pleasing to him. And he says this, you know what, if no human being can tame the tongue, you know why? Because actually the tongue is not the root of the issue. He says, look, if you look at a, a stream can't produce fresh water and salt water at the same time, it can only produce one thing. It's not about the salt or the fresh. It's actually about looking what's the root of the stream, what's the source of the stream. And if we're going to deal with our tongue, we have to get back to the root. What's the cause of the issue? Where's, where's it coming from? And, you know, Jesus said it's, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. You see, the root issue of our words is actually our hearts. You see, your language locates you. Your speech tells tales on you. It reveals something about you. It reveals your beliefs. It reveals your values. It reveals your motives. It reveals what's going on in your heart. I want to ask you a question. If you were to look back on this week... If you were to look back on, on this year, perhaps from the beginning of January the 1st, 2018, just that small portion of time, what would your words be telling you about the condition of your heart? Because whatever the condition, there's just one solution, the presence of God.
is in his presence, we are changed. Corinthians tells us that as we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, he's talking about the fact that we can go directly into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. There's no barrier between us and God. We can stand in his presence. Just be with him and you know what? That's how, we, that's how we're changed. Changed from the inside out. You know, when we get, begin to get into the presence of God, it begins to change our heart and the rest will follow. So I want to share in these, in these last few minutes that we've got, I, I want to talk about how do we get into the presence of God? How do we begin to build a lifestyle that, that brings us into the presence of God? Because you know what? The presence of God, the voice of God is the voice we need to be listening to more than anything else, more than anyone else. The presence of God. I want to talk about three spiritual disciplines. You know, the life of a disciple is a life of discipline. Discipleship and discipline are like two sides of the same coin. But you know, disciplines are not a means in the, in, to an end. The disciplines are there to help us access the presence of God, to help us build an authentic relationship with God. And I want to talk about three practices, the practice of stillness, the practice of silence, and the practice of solitude. You know, stillness is really just about ceasing our, our activity Coming away, stepping out of our activity and the endless to-do list, creating space in our world for God. And then silence is really is about stopping talking and just listening to God. And solitude, you know, the, the best context for stillness and silence is, is solitude. We have to be on our own with God. And I just want to share something of my own experience in this. You see, I, I, didn't, I didn't learn about these disciplines. Actually, I, I fell into them accidentally. About 12 years ago, when my life absolutely fell apart, and when my husband left, and I was absolutely heartbroken, you asked me then about the condition of my heart, I was absolutely devastated. I was a really young Christian. My faith was, you know, up and down. I went to church. My prayer life was inconsistent. But that experience drove me into the presence of God because I was desperate. I mean, I can tell you, I never knew that you could cry from your guts. It was desperation that drove me into the presence of God. You know, suddenly I had all the time in the world. I never really spent a lot of time on my own. I'm one of seven children, second eldest of seven children. You can imagine, I never spent any time on my own growing up. Getting to my 20s, always in a relationship. Suddenly, I'm on my own for the first time, living on my own. And I began to just not even deliberately, but by accident. I knew God was there and I knew that I needed him, but honestly, 
A lot of it at the beginning was just sobbing in his presence. And saying to him, I, I, I didn't even have the words. All I could do was just cry and sob. I had a con- one of my connect group leader at the time, you know, she'd, she'd lost her husband. She understood something about grief. And she said to me, Jenna, why don't you get a journal? And just begin to write. If you feel you can't speak, just, just begin to write out what you're feeling. And so I began to just sit with God and I'd be just journaling and, and writing and pouring out my heart. I can't tell you the, the peace that I experienced in those moments. Just the, I'd never known God like that. I'd never, I'd never experienced God like that, but all I can tell you is that the God of the Bible came off the pages and became real in my life. He came into my living room and he loved me back to life. I can tell you, I've had lots of counseling in my life and it's really helped me, but it's nothing compared to the presence of God. Is nothing compared to the presence of God. The presence of God has healed me. But you know, we go through different stages, and I, I remember as I was processing things and beginning to recover and find that healing, and I was feeling stronger and just really feeling that I, you know, started to go out a bit more and socialize again, and I felt like joy was coming back into my life. But one of the things that I used to do was I, I loved to sing. And, uh, you know, sing, singing brought me joy. And so I'd go off and just buy, I used to buy a CD, a backing track, okay? <laughs> With, um, and you'd get a music book and all the words of the latest pop tunes and stuff. So I used to buy this and then this was part of my, I had so much time to myself. So I'd, I can remember this one particular morning, I'd had some time with God just journaling. And then I thought, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sing. I always waited for the neighbors to go out to make sure they weren't, uh, around, and I just put on the CD uh, as the backing track, and then I would start to sing, choosing my favourite songs. And um, yeah, so I just remember as I started doing this, I, I was thinking about how I was watching X Factor at that time, and I just remember Simon Cowell saying, you know, to people that they needed to really connect with the words, you know, like they really need to feel that song from their heart, and. So I started singing the song, I Will Survive, by Gloria Gaynor. <clears throat> I was like, hmm. At first I was afraid, I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights feeling sorry for myself. I used to cry. But now I hold my head up high, and you'll see me. Somebody new, I'm not that chained up little person still in love with you. And you just felt like walking in and just expect me to be free. Now I'm saving all my loving for someone who's loving me. So now go, walk out the door. Don't turn around now, cause you're not welcome anymore. Weren't you the one who tried to kill me with goodbye? Did you think I'd crumble? Did you think I'd lay down and die? Oh, no, not I. I will survive. 
Oh, as long as I know how to love, I know I'll stay alive. And I've got all my love to live. I know I've got all my love to give and I'll survive. I will survive, yeah. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit spoke to me in that moment. And he said to me, Jen, you're singing that with just a little bit too much passion. <laughs> Seriously. And I said, yeah, you're right. Because I don't want to come out of this divorce bitter with a survival mentality and chip on my shoulder and hating men and... No, no, Father, that's not who I want to be. I want to be tender-hearted. I want to be gentle. I want to have such a soft heart towards you and towards others. You see, the presence of God heals us. The presence of God changes us. So I want to encourage you to, to draw aside. to begin to create space, maybe just start with five minutes each day to just sit in the presence of God. To be silent, to listen to him by yourself, on your own. You know, as I was preparing for today, I, I had such a sense that, that God really wanted me to speak to you about coming into his presence. And I just kept getting the song, it's a Nora Jones song of, come away with me, come away with me. And I believe that's what God wants to say to you this morning, church, come away with me, come away with me by yourself. Come away with me to a quiet place. Come away with me. Is there some things that he wants to say? There's some areas in your life that he wants to touch. And he wants to remind you. that you belong to him, that you're his child, and that he loves you. Can I ask Louise to just come up and thank you? I want us to just take a few minutes to just to just do that i know we're together so we're not you know we're not in solitude but the stillness and the silence bit we can do 
And I just want us to just close our eyes and just quieten ourselves in his presence. Louise is going to play in the background. And I want you to just, just turn your heart to God. You know, silence is actually called the prayer of contemplation. It's actually a prayer. It feels as though we're not doing anything, but actually being silent before the Lord is, is praying. It's a, it's a loving attentiveness to God. We're just being with Him. Let's just take a moment to do that.